40, 50 years ago, economics was the major key and culture was the minor key. You know, you had progressive liberals in the Labour Party and in the Democrats in the 60s, but that wasn't the big driver. That was, you know, that was the minor driver. That was the sidecar. Um, whereas now what you see is that culture is, is the big driver and economics becomes um, the sidecar. In 1789, members of a national assembly in Paris divided themselves between those who thought the king should have an absolute veto, sat on the right of the president of the assembly, and those who thought he should not, sat on the left of the president of the assembly. The party of order versus a party of progress. This left-right divide has served as the founding metaphor of the modern European politics but more than two centuries later, many people have started writing the obituary of that divide. In 2017, the election of Emmanuel Macron against Marine Le Pen seemed to usher a new cleavage, loosely defined as open, closed by some, nationalist versus globalist by others, etc. But is the left-right divide buried just yet? Today we take stock of the health of that divide and map the main cleavages dividing European politics with François Hublé of Le Grand Continent and Rob Ford, author of Brexit Land and a senior fellow at UK in a changing Europe. As always, please rate and review Uncommon Decency on whatever platform you use and send us your comments or questions either on Twitter at UndecencyPod or by email UndecencyPod at gmail.com and please consider supporting the show for Patreon. Link is below in the description. You'll get the access to the full episode where we talk with our guests about the upcoming European elections, so definitely join us for that. Now, on to the episode. Rob, is the left-right divide the divide that has determined European politics for seemingly ever? Is that does that divide still exist? Uh, in in a word, yes. Um, but I think what's happened is politics has become a great deal more complicated because we now have two divides, probably at least two divides, overlaid on top of each other. So is it the case that in most European countries, poorer voters will tend to vote for parties that favour redistribution? On the whole, yes, richer voters will tend to support parties that like to keep taxes low. That's still, to some extent, true. But in many countries and in many elections, what you're finding is that that's no longer the primary motivation aligning voters to the extent that used to be the case. So voters will now vote more strongly along uh, cultural lines, along identity lines, uh, along social values lines, even when uh, those things are in tension with their views on economics. So it's not that the economic divide has completely disappeared, it's that it's now become one factor amongst many, whereas it used to be a dominant factor. 
And bouncing back on what Rob was just saying about the kind of uh, left to right divide being um, challenged, is that something you also find in your analysis of the data? Just for people who aren't familiar, you, you work for Le Grand Continent, who have done this amazing set of maps kind of na analyzing national results, but, it's a, but you get the results at a hyper-local level, so you get an, an amazing level yes. of granularity. Um, what did you find in those results? Is the left-right divide still with us, or has it been challenged by emerging cleavages? Well, both, I think. I mean, they, it still exists, obviously, and I think I completely agree with uh, with what uh, Rob just uh, just suggested. I mean, this cleavage is is there. In one of the most obvious examples is, is the last um, the last presidential election in France, where I mean, all of the data just just shows that Macron got votes mostly from from reach of voters on average. I mean, this is the the dominant factor that that does explain the vote as well when you look at at, at very granular levels of of data. What happens, though, is that there are obviously other cleavages and, and partly cleavages that, that do not really um, that are not really impacted by uh, something same things like wealth and, and income as much as, as as you would have expected it. And and typically, to to get back to that French example, the the vote for the National Front or that that became the National Rally in France is actually pretty neutral in terms of income. So when you control for for everything else, the effect of incomes is much lower than you would expect it. It is it is higher for Macron, it is higher for the left, but it it is lower for 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 a party like the Front National, which which is polarizing on on different lines. Yeah. Right. I I want to get back to uh, I I feel like we've just kind of like really um, started to, to crack the nut uh, that is going to take up most of the, the conversation over over the course of the hour. And I want to go back to, to Rob's uh, sort of um, general framework uh, of these these two divides that are being overlaid on, on top of one another. And it, my question essentially is, you know, we, we tend to think of why people vote the way they vote. What, why, what is the main determining factor for casting one ballot instead of another it, along those two sort of lines that you've described, right? Material questions, cultural identitarian questions. And my question is, to what extent are we now seeing also certain degree of, of interconnection between those two, right? In, in I think you see this uh, to a great extent in, in, in parts of Europe, but you really see this very powerfully in, in the US with the election of Donald Trump, where what was initially seen as a primarily sort of a socioeconomic protest vote in certain parts of the country, in the, these key swing states in Ohio and Pennsylvania, was initially very much understood a lot, you know, through the through the prism of, of you know uh, economic dispossession and whatnot. But what, to what extent was that also a sort of a cultural sense of insecurity, a cultural sense of seeing those communities and sort of Appalachia and, and the, the hinterlands of, of, of the Rust Belt and the, the post-industrial states of, of the U.S. To what extent was that also a sense of you know we're seeing the country shift? culturally so much and you know is is it really possible to sort of disentangle economics and culture in the way that that political science seems to be uh inviting us to do rob well that that's a great question uh i mean what one of my favorite academic papers from recent years on on the british context um was looking at this the, this narrative which we also have in britain with brexit and everything like that that this is a kind of cultural protest amongst places who feel left behind is often the phrase that gets used about this, feel that the direction of the country is uh, against them, uh, feel resentful about distant elites who don't share their values, etc, etc. 
And what the authors did was go back and look at uh, economic decline in, in places over the course of many decades and then show that economic decline over a 20, 30, 40 year time horizon predicted cultural resentment, declining political trust. And that in turn became the proximate predictor of support for Brexit and support for the post-Brexit Conservative Party. So then what is the narrative there? These places do badly economically. They don't feel their economic pain is addressed. They lose faith in the political system and they vote for people who, who are uh, attacking the political system as it is. And then at that point, the question of is it economics or is it politics? It's like trying to unscramble the omelette, isn't it? Because actually they are mixed together in a, in a very basic way. So that's, that's point number one that I would make is that I very much agree with your point that sometimes it, it, we're making a kind of category error if we think that these things can be separated out so neatly. Um, uh, but a second point I would make is there is some degree to which you can see which is the major key and which is the minor key, which is the heading, which is the subheading in terms of the strength of the relationships. And one of the things that has changed between, say, the politics of the last 10 years, certainly transatlantically, which I know best, and I think this is true in many European countries as well. I've just come back from a holiday in Poland where my wife's folks are from. It's a very big theme there, is that 40, 50 years ago, economics was the major key and culture was the minor key. You know, you have progressive liberals in the Labour Party and in the Democrats in the 60s. But that wasn't the big driver. That was, you know, that was the minor driver. That was the sidecar. Um, whereas now what you see is that culture is, is the big driver and economics becomes um, the sidecar. But also hmm. that's on both sides. I mean, you talked about Trump's America and everything like that. But it's true on the left as well. And so, something that I found persistently surprising is the degree to which people on the left cannot seem to grasp the idea of economics not being primary for people who are not on the left, even though they're all rich middle-class liberals who vote for redistribution that's not in their economic interest. So it's like, you all want to pay higher taxes and have your money go to someone else. You are not voting your economic interest. Why are you surprised that other people in a different economic position might also not vote their economic interest because they may have other reasons for voting for parties, just as you have other reasons for voting for parties? And I think one reason that they are selectively blind on that is because people, particularly in the kind of progressive, socially liberal, graduate left, they really dis dislike thinking about the ways in which the people they think they want to help may not like them very much. Uh, mm. And so they just like to avoid that conversation as far as possible because it's, it's very uncomfortable terrain for them. But, you know, in a world of Kurt Wilders and Donald Trump and Boris Johnson, you can't avoid having that conversation. They're going to bring that conversation to you whether you like it or not. Oswald, do you want to bounce back on that? Yes. Uh, so, so about the correlation issue first, I mean, that's, that's a very interesting one. So when you look at these data, of course, there's no two clear axes that would be uncorrelated with each other. You see a lot of correlation, and a lot is a lot, really. I mean, when you, when you measure something like the effect of... Uh, of, of a party uh, on on a party vote of something like income, you can have like fifty percent of the very of the the variation explained. And then when you had another factor, say the 
say something about, about cultural values, you might get 20% more. But actually, if you do the opposite, you might still get 50% first and 20% next. So knowing who is who is first and who is the determinant factor is really a problem. And, and I think it's, it's even worse with cultural factors um, because they're not independent variables. So, so if you're measuring something like, um, like anti-immigration positions, um, clearly this is going to predict vote for far-right parties way, way better than other factors. But it's not like this thing would be something independent of, of all possible, uh, I don't know, income or, or um, socialization uh, levels of, of educational attainment, etc., it's, it's something that's already on the, to some extent, on the output side of, 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 of this political formula. So it's, it's not clear at all how, how these, um, these factors kind of influence each other. Um, I, I do agree that there is uh, probably more um, focus in, in public discussion and public discourse on, on these cultural issues than, than had been before. Though I, I don't know if it's really a, a, um, something that changed in the, in, in the population, if it's really the... Uh, the, the, the let's say the, the demand side of this equation that changed, or if it's also the supply supply side that, that moved its discourse quite a lot. Because when you look at, at attitudes in the electorate, when you ask people about, uh, for example, how tolerant they are, uh, like vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, different minorities, vis-a-vis -vis immigration, vis-a-vis -vis, um, different topics, you find that tolerance actually increased with time. And still in, uh, in the... the public debate, you find a lot more, more voices that are actually much more negative about these topics. So, so it's not like that, that would be something that would be just deeply ingrained in some kind of generational changes and some type of, of, of zeitgeist that would be evolving towards something more conflictual. It, it's, it's much more complicated than, than just that. Uh, so, so that would be my, my, my main point on that. And I think we, we need to look at that problem also from the point of view of, 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 of uh, narratives that the parties are propagating. So typically you would find a, a great lot of, of people on the left side of the political spectrum that would insist that, I mean, that, that um, material values and that the problems of redistribution and the, the issues with wealth and income are very important. And that's actually the thing that is driving, that is driving political competition. You find a lot of that. On the other side, you find a lot of right-wingers that would be very adamant about the fact that actually culture is that what the thing that matters. Because these are things that, that kind of meet their political agendas. So I think in order to understand better what the actual drivers are, we need to like take a step back and try also to think in terms of what kind of narratives are we confronted to? Because these narratives are not just an, a kind of input part of this, this political system. They're also a great, a great lot on the, on the output side. And it's very hard to disentangle what is, you know, um, activistic statements that are meant to propagate a certain vision of, of what politics is about and what the actual changes in the electorate are, because there is mutual interaction between them. So before we move on to um, this kind of new cleavage, where Rob, you describe in, in your paper, I kind of want to start, go, go, let's go back a little bit in time. We agree the left-right divide isn't gone, but it's kind of weaker and kind of much less structural, especially in some European countries. Rob, could you kind of give us a, an explanation as to why the left-right divide is less structural now than it was maybe, let's say, 50 years ago? Is it a question about immigration? Is it a question about education, globalisation? Is the electorate of the centre-right and the centre-left, that coalition, does that coalition no longer exist? How do we, how do we explain that? Oh, well, I mean, it's quite a challenge to answer that question briefly, because you could do like literally a whole um, eight lecture course on possible explanations for that. Uh, it's a huge, huge question. But to, to, there are clearly 
um, both um, structural and supply side elements to this story. So demand side and supply side elements to this story, as Francois pointed out. So to, to point out a few, uh, the economic structure in developed societies has changed. You know, as Shavorsky pointed out way back in the 1980s, centre-left parties weren't going to be able to win with just a working class electorate because the working class was shrinking and the middle class was growing. At the same time, you've had the mass expansion of higher education everywhere. And higher education is the strongest predictor everywhere of socially liberal attitudes on what we might call quote unquote dimension two. In most Western European countries and across the Atlantic, you've seen a big increase in the immigrant origin minority population. That has introduced a dimension of politics, both on the liberal side that tends to be very pro-immigration and pro-minority rights, and on the conservative side that views immigration as the sort of strongest proximate threat to forms of identity that they care about. And radical right parties everywhere mobilize, particularly on that issue of, of immigration and minority uh, identity. Um, and on top of all of this, the behavior of parties and the degree of attachment to parties has changed as well. Um, what political sociologists back at the beginning of post-war study of politics found was what were called frozen party systems. Everyone was kind of, you know, it was like the situation that I have up here in Manchester right now. Everyone's locked into either United or City. Those are the teams. You've got those two teams and you support one of those two teams, come what may. Uh, lots of party systems were like that. And it was class. It was church. It was w working men's clubs. It was business societies. There was a whole bunch of reinforcing structures locking people in. And it was also internal tribal identities, partisan identities. Those things have faded away a lot more, producing a much more open market, which means that both the traditional parties have to work harder and move around more to hold on to votes. But it, it also opens the space up to new competitive parties. So, I mean, I could go on and on and on. But the point is that there's a whole bunch of stuff, uh, structural stuff uh, and also party competition stuff that's happened to open the electoral market up in this way at the same time as things like mass higher education, rising diversity, rising immigration have opened up a whole new agenda of issues that people can compete upon. Also, any thoughts on that? Um, yes. Uh, so, so first, I think we need to to uh, insist on the fact that the cleavage is also not gone. I mean, if you look at countries like Spain, um, I mean, even the UK to some extent and, and others, um, you do find a, a still a large amount of, 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 um, of this voting behavior that is explained by income, wealth and other factors that are traditionally associated to this kind of economic left-right divide. Um, and second, probably we can also divide these second axes into several sub-axes. So things like the um, attitudes toward immigration on one side and educational attainment uh, on, on the other are correlated, but they do not match 100%. And you have a lot of different situations when you look at different geographical areas, when you look at different uh, a different uh, contrasts between cities and, and countryside, for example, that, that you would observe uh, here in, in this context, despite these two being usually... Uh, framed together because they are part of, say, a common, often phrased in terms of a common political agenda, not always. Um, so, so it it hasn't it isn't gone on the first dimension, and the second dimension is more complicated than just like you know being more or less liberal uh, in a way. Um, and 
I think it, it, we, we saw a great deal of, of increase in, in, in complexity in, in, in many party systems. Like, like uh, some uh, decades ago, the, the, for example, the political systems of the Netherlands was con- considered extremely complicated. I think it is still the case. It grew, it grew more complicated in the meantime, but many countries are starting, I mean, start resembling the Netherlands a little bit. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, not necessarily in the UK again, uh, but but if you look at if you look at France for the European elections, you will see like a number of parties that are like somewhere between five and fifteen percent. Uh, if you look at Germany, there is also a lot of uh, of changes in the in the party system right now, and a lot of that is also related to to these changes and cleavages. So maybe one thing I can add, and actually just reinforcing what you just said, Rob, on the on the on the uh, structural role of the parties. Uh, if you look at Germany, for example, the, the SPD, for example, the Social Democrats, between 1990 and today, they've lost half of their membership. I mean, the, the membership was something like one million, which is huge for a national party, even in a country of the side of, of, of Germany, if you compare that to other European parties. Now they're somewhere around, I think, four to 300,000. And most of these are actually um, uh, already pensioned. I mean, you have like a, a median age of something like somewhere between 50 and 60. I don't remember exactly the figure. So you will see this population is, is aging further. And even though the population of Germany is quite old already, this is not representative of the overall electorate. And, and you will see that this tendency increasing and increasing in the next years. And it's not surprising. And in Germany right now, you see a lot of, of movement in the party system. We have not, we've got uh, one and actually even two new parties recently in the last weeks that, that might play an important role in the, in the next regional elections in, 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 uh, in fall. And, uh, and this is definitely related to changes of party structure as well. I mean, the, the um, supply side is changing dramatically. I mean, one, one thing I would add on that is that the, that same kind of structural change in Britain and probably in America too ends up happening within parties because of the constraint of the electoral system. So it's not that it isn't there. It's just submerged within internal party conflicts. I think both the Labour Party and the Conservative Party in Britain would be much happier as two separate, at least two separate parties each. I remember interviewing one senior Labour figure after the 2019 election who, who compared the, the arguments over the, the sort of Labour Party internally to a divorced couple arguing over who gets to keep the House. Because uh, essentially, whichever faction gets to control the electoral machine of the Labour Party basically gets to set the agenda. But they, they're a divorced couple. They don't want to be in the same house, but they have to be. And you look at the the Democratic Party of Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders, you look at the Conservative Party that contains uh, both David Cameron and Marc Francois, and you see the same thing. These are, these are factions of people who in any proportional electoral system would almost certainly be in different parties right now. But the, one of the sort of functions or dysfunctions of plurality electoral systems is forcing those people into the same organisation. Yeah. So essentially, the idea is that in some countries, a cleavage is being kind of artificially held together because in the electoral system, that gives the impression that actually nothing is changing, but that change is kind of purely internal and the, the infighting is representing that kind of evolution. Exactly. And so th- this is where supply side and demand side interact. So the demand side has changed just as much in Britain. You know, there's a desire for a green left party. There's desire for a radical progressive party. There's a desire for a radical right party. But there's no outlet for that because of the way our electoral system operates. And so that gets channeled into the big two dominant parties and causes all sorts of internal tensions and fractures and factionalization within those parties. 
I mean, another very clear example is the, the German conservatives. Again, I mean, this, mm. the CDU has had a lot of pressure since uh, since Merkel's chancellorship. Now is, is is moving. I mean, the leadership is moving to the right quite a lot, but that's not the case of all the voters. Uh, I mean, it's 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 been more the case recently than it used to be, but still, there is a lot of of change happening, and therefore the risks of um, of, of secession of part of the party is also becoming larger. Um, I, I do agree with that important role of of um, of, um, of voting systems and, and how institutions work. And this is this is really impressive when you look at the difference between um, between say France, Germany, the UK, and the Netherlands. Um, and and again to talk about this example of of, of the Netherlands, which I, I like quite a lot because they really I mean the Dutch electoral system is really based on the assumption that you should uh, you know you should stand for your uh, your your peculiarities and and there are a lot of small parties that do some some kind of coalitions together at some point, uh, which sometimes makes the situation quite quite hard to predict. Uh, and that's the case right now, but but has a lot of, you know, internalization of, of conflict that you have to to manage within the party system. Um, and, and if you look at their results and, and how the way different kind of, of, of sensibilities are, are expressing themselves in this system, you don't find a distribution that's very different from what you would see in France or Germany. The, the main difference is that this is managed in a completely different way. And again, if you look at the, at the, at the polls for the European elections, um, if you look at Belgium, France, and, and the Netherlands, you don't find a huge lot of difference in like the shares of, you know, far right and, and liberals and left, like more left wing, strongly left wing parties and some kind of, of liberal centre right. You you don't find a huge lot of difference, but what you find is that the result in national elections is very different because the the constraints of the of the institutions are also very different. I mean, in France, you have to kind of stand in a two round election and you have to get to the second round, so you get a lot of polarization around single um, single leaders that try to attract everyone around them. Whereas in the Netherlands, you just have an interest to. There's no electoral threshold, so you can just run on your own and try to maximize your own electorate. So. Um, so this is this is indeed a massive effect that we're seeing there, and then not not, not even talking about the, the different dynamics inside the parties that are also really impacted by the way um, the political system works. I have a question which might come as a bit of a, a curveball and maybe slightly out of scope, but how do you explain when take Greece for example ten years ago or France with Macron elected? What needs to happen for a kind of established cleavage to be kind of to politically explode and be replaced by 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 something else? Um, again, this might be slightly out of scope of a conversation here, but why is it that in some countries uh, traditional party structure will survive and in others it will completely explode? Um, maybe starting with Hossoir. I mean, in the case of France, I think it's a it's it's a very difficult question. It's it's a question that that I think no one figured out recently. I mean, I, there maybe is no explanation to as to why this thing exploded, but um, but it's it's very interesting because France was really very strongly structured, and there I'm, I'm mostly not only but mostly talking about the supply side. It was very strongly uh, structured by this left right divided. I mean, it, it's it's very a, a very French thing that people ask each other whether they're left or right. Because in many countries, they would ask you if you're voting for, you know, for the Social Democrats, if you're voting for the Conservatives, if you're voting for the Greens, if you're voting for the Liberals, and that has been the way the political system was has been working for some time already. And this left right thing that was like really deeply ingrained in the political identities of the parties is something that's very specific to France. And yet, even though this thing is not gone in the electorate completely, because there is still a lot of identification to these two sides, the political system seems to be working differently. Mm. Now, 
it seems to be working differently now, and there has been a lot of, of talking about tripolarization, uh, which which is this uh, new you know this new trend in French politics. I think the rest of the world doesn't really talk about that concept, but they have been very you know very focused on on this notion. Actually, you're seeing a lot of realignment on different directions right now. I mean, it's, it's not really clear that you will get three blocks in the end, or maybe you will get four, maybe you will get two. It's not completely clear. And and, and you see Macron, for example, becoming more and more of a traditional center right party, which um, Kind of takes up like takes over the codes of, of the traditional center right. Well, the center right that that used to be there is is moving more and more to the right and kind of being absorbed more and more by more radical parties. So you, you're seeing a lot of old cleavages coming back and restructuring of the political system in in, in an institutional framework that doesn't that hasn't really changed. And in fact, you could have we could have hoped. I I hoped for for, for the political system in France to kind of adapt to this new situation. But it seems they're just uh, you know waiting for the next election to happen and some kind of bipolarity to be reintroduced, which uh, is not necessarily the best way to manage uh, to manage conflicts in general. Yeah, Rob. Uh, I mean, I'm going to start with Greece um, because I think the Greece story is is more straightforward. And I just wanted to offer a few thoughts of my own on on the French situation, which I do find really fascinating in all sorts of respects. So I think when you look what happened in Greece with the you know the disappearance of Pasok and the rise of Syriza, I mean, I remember there was a discourse for like about four or five years about Pasok. Could, could you just clarify which is uh, which is which for people who are not? Oh familiar yeah, with sure. Yeah. So Pasok are like the centre left. They're like the original centre-left party since uh, Greek democracy came uh, back in the early 1980s. Uh, Syriza are the radical left. Um, so what happened after the financial, after the debt crisis, the Eurozone debt crisis in Greece, is that, that PASOK, who were in charge at that point, they collapsed completely. They went from about 35 40% in the polls down to about under 10% in the polls, but kind of in stages. And Syriza rose to prominence. And... I think that's actually relatively straightforward to explain if you just look at the grasp of Greek GDP in that period, um, because, you know, one of the kind of rules of thumb of elections is like uh, periods of economic growth don't necessarily guarantee you political success, but a major period of economic decline is is, is going to be really bad news for you politically. Mm-hmm. Um, there's in, in one of my lectures, I like to talk about all the parties that got killed by the Great Depression back in the early 1930s, like for all over the world, like the, whoever had the misfortune to be holding the bag when, when the Great Depression came, that was doomed for them. And I really think that was a similar story uh, with PASOK. And the other thing is the Greek electoral system was designed to accelerate that process once it got underway because they give this bonus of seats uh, to the top party. So once left-wing voters start thinking, oh, well, Syriza are our best shot at forming a government, they were likely to come over to it strategically. Uh, and more recently, now that Syriza are in opposition, a lot of the centre-left people who backed Syriza seem to be losing faith in them, and we're getting re-Pasokification. Pasok are actually coming back. So I think in Greece, it's a simple case of financial crisis will really smash up your electoral prospects. The same thing happened with Fina Foyle in Ireland at the same point. Same thing happened with the centre-left in Hungary, and they never came back. Of course, that was the beginning of Orbán's uh, sort of electoral autocracy. Um, whereas France, I find interesting because it's it's like the frustration of the explicit goal of the de Gaulle Fifth Republic system. This was supposed to be a system that would build strong bipolar competition around strong leader-focused parties. And the French seems to have managed to find a way to do the strong leader-focused bit 
but with no party system attached to it. And as a Brit, I find it genuinely kind of puzzling because um, the problems we often have come from parties that, that exercise too much control on who ends up in charge. Whereas in France, it seems like the big personalities exercise too much control on the party system. The party system ends up being this unpredictable mix of whichever are the big personalities around in French politics at, at a particular time. And yeah, I, I, I for one, would love to, to read a really good book explaining how the heck that happened, because that clearly wasn't the goal. Unfortunately, intention. it hasn't been written, I think. <laughs> have you done a book on that, Francois? Uh, no, not that much. I mean, not that I could I could claim to have uh, to have a good summary of the situation. Um, maybe I can actually move our our focus for an instant to Eastern Europe, because there is one cleavage that we didn't discuss yet, and I think in, it kind of uh, was was there somewhere in the in the Greek story as well, um, which is this new rise of anti-corruption movements. Um, We've seen that a lot in, in, in Romania. We've seen it a lot in, um, in Bulgaria with uh, mixed results, I would say, in both cases. Uh, we've seen that in Slovenia, where um, the current um, prime minister is actually coming from that uh, movement. We've seen it in, in, in many different Eastern European countries, actually. And we've seen that to some extent in the way um, that uh, PASOK was actually losing, uh, losing grip um, on, on the Greek political system in, in, in the wake of the, of the financial crisis. So that is, that is a factor that hasn't really played a, a, such a major role in Western Europe, with maybe two exceptions that have gone like a bit below the, the radars in, in, this, in these regards, which would be, um, to some extent, the five-star movement in, in Italy, uh, which, which, was much more, which has this very strong populist aspect at, at the beginning, which much less so now, but, but used to be really playing on that kind of, on that kind of, um, of, of, of sentiments. And to some extent, the... Uh, uh, the French case of uh, Gilets Jaunes and others that really try to move this agenda, but in a, this case, this, in, in this case, in a like, markedly populist way, this agenda of, of the of the people in charge, people on top, being responsible for the bad state of, of what would be the country or the economy or um, or um, like social conditions, etc. And I think this is this is a cleavage that doesn't really match either of the cultural or the economic. Um, axes that we discussed before, but that is kind of underlying many of the discussions we're just talking about, about why party systems are, are losing grip and, and, uh, and, all, and all parties especially are, are, are getting weaker and weaker. And, and the interesting as aspect in this, in this discussion about, uh, about anti-corruption movements is that the, these are not necessarily um, populist. These are also not necessarily liberal. They can be a mix of both. So, for example, in the case of Romania and Bulgaria, you had markedly liberal, very Macron-ish parties that that played this role of, of, of being the, the newcomer that tries to shake the political system, so reduce clientelism, reduce corruption, etc. While in the case of Italy, the, the initial um, impetus was, was very much a, a populist, uh, bottom-up and sometimes uh, overtly, um, say, say, almost vulgar way of, of doing politics. So, so, so it's 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 very interesting aspect that I think is also not it's not absent from from most European countries, but just gets unnoticed because it kind of correlates with different aspects. And another cleavage, because the I think in today's discussion about cleavages, and there's another one that we didn't yet yet discuss, is 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 the cleavage between uh, some regions and and the center. And I think this has become prominent in the case of Spain. Uh, for obvious reasons, this has become prominent in the case of uh, Scotland and the UK, 
also obviously, but this is actually also transpiring in a lot of discussions in, in France, for example, lots of discussions in Germany about East and Eastern and Western parts of the country mm-hmm. and, and, and about Italy, obviously, between the North and the South. I mean, the Five Star Movement and the Lega were originally regionalist parties of their own kind. I mean, with different agendas, with different histories, but they both had this kind of underlying um, logic. So, so I think these are things that we probably need to analyze together with the other cleavages that we discussed because they are like kind of independent and orthogonal to um, to um, to the others. If you want to listen to the full episode where we talk about the European question, the tensions, well, not just the European question, but the supranational and the infranational uh, conversations going on in Spain, going on in the UK, going across the continent, as well as the upcoming European elections, you can join us in our patron section um, for as little as five euros a month. The uh, link is below in the description. We would love to have you on with us for those conversations. Thank you so much for a fantastic conversation, which has taken us from Bulgaria to to Spain. Um, I mean, really, really fascinating. And I hope all of you who've, who've tuned in will, will agree with us. Um, thank you so much to Rob. Rob, if you want to um, read more about his work, he published this fantastic article about the Changing Cleavage Politics of Western Europe. He published that in 2020. And if you want to read more about Francois, he's um, working for Le Grand Continent, and we've uh, used his work here on the maps, which kind of map um, different national resorts at a hyperlocal level for Le Grand Continent. Um, so that's a fantastic resource for anyone who's interested in maps, as I am. Um, thank you so much, and uh, see you all soon. So, um, Rob Ford and Francois Hublet are both out. Uh, Francois, I think it would be fair to say that this has been one of our most sort of uh, scientific and scholarly conversations. This has been really a deep dive into the political science of party cleavages and the evolving nature of of, um, of party fractures and political fractures. And um, this has been a really important episode ahead of the EU elections. I think, you know, we've, towards the end of the episode, we've covered, you know, how will this sort of scientific take, how may it impact uh, the electoral result in June? What did you think about some of the themes we touched upon at the beginning? There's so much to um, pick on here. Um, I mean, first of all, I really encourage people to, first of all, go read uh, Rob's uh, paper on this, which is really interesting. But if you're also a bit more kind of a visual reader like me, the, the maps from the Grand Continent, which will be in the description, are just really interesting insight and changing nature of European politics. Um, I'm not sure how we're going to title this episode. There's a few angles we could go for. But I think one angle which is interesting is, which I think we could have explored more, but in the end uh, end up going elsewhere, is this emerging emergence of a kind of new cleavage in Europe, which again doesn't mean that there isn't the traditional left-right divide. That, of course, still exists. But, you know, that's for the focus of Rob's paper, about how this new cleavage emerges. And I think one thing which I found interesting is kind of a struggle to define it. Um, Francois at some point was was trying to find the right word and kind of saying, you know, there's a few ways to, to talk about it. There's open, closed, nationalist, globalist, no matter, no matter how you want to call it. And I think the most chemically 
pure, let's say, version of that is kind of Macron versus Le Pen, at least the kind of most successful version of that. But I was, I'm really interested in that topic because I think, you know, it has translated itself perfectly in the French context. But it was, it is definitely also in the background in other countries. It was in in, in full display uh, during the Trump election, of course, um, during the conversations around Brexit. And there's something about it which I find a little unsettling. If this is going to be increasingly the future of politics, um, if it is already the future of politics in France, the instability of that system feels to me a little unhealthy. Because essentially what you have is, if you go back to kind of Aristotle's divisions of politics, mm. you have essentially a kind of centrist party with a aristocratic temptation of saying mm. we can't really trust the people, we need to... Um, you know, referendums are not trustworthy. Uh, the people can the people can vote wrong. Um, we need to make sure we kind of in in kind of a lot of power given to liberal but not democratic institutions in the sense that we have this kind of electoral backing. Uh, it can be for some understandable understandable reasons, for some technical reasons like central banks, but also kind of the increasing power of courts, for example, on on politics or NGOs or and so on. So you have this which has kind of all the kind of political, economic, cultural capital concentrated. And then you have the other party, mm-hmm. which is kind of this insurgent party, which has none of this kind of capital. Um, you know, they have fewer civil servants who are backing them. They have fewer kind of intellectuals. They have fewer kind of artists and so on. has none of this kind of what we'll do with called capital. Um, but at the same time, it is a political alternative to that system. And that alternative, at its worst, as we're seeing, has this kind of authoritarian temptation of saying, well, you know, if the rule of law is stopping us, we need to get rid of the rule of law, which, of course, is very dangerous. And I think since Tocqueville, we know the importance of not succumbing to pure majoritarianism. But I think this kind of dual temptation, which I think is a threat to democracy and is kind of very unstable, because at the moment in France, we have, you know, this centrist, competent um, leadership. But at the same time, it feels like if the alternative to Macron is Le Pen, at some point we will get the alternative because we can't have a kind of one-party system that's the same people forever and ever and ever. At some point, there will be an alternative. Um, so I just find this kind of the system as it exists to be kind of either unstable or dangerous. Um, yeah, my thoughts, anyways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, um, yeah, it, it, you know, it's it's. Um, it's 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 a really interesting sort of genealogy to, to to kind of trace back this sort of like new right wing politics, which is more skeptical of sort of liberal pieties, liberal norms, right? Liberal democracy, the independence of the judiciary, and the separation of powers, right? These new right wing parties that are more willing to take on these sort of entrenched liberal deep state uh, in a way that sort of raises a specter of autocracy, or as our friend Rob said, you know, electoral autocracy in the case of Hungary. It's a really interesting genealogy to trace that back to the authoritarianism of sort of 19th century uh, French nationalism, say. That really was authoritarian. That really was very anti-democratic. It saw um, democracy as sort of a, as, you know, a very sort of, for one thing, it was secular, right? So the religious traditionalists really were very suspicious of that. Um, And... And I think it, what you're trying to say, if I understand you correctly, Francois, is that at the end of the day, these political values that we hold at the macro level and what we're asking our political parties to affect at the political level is traceable back to our values at the individual level. 
this this is this is traceable to um you know adorno you know the authoritarian personality back in the 20s i believe he kind of like um he like psych he, he came up with a psychiatric definition of fascism um he claimed that nazism had its roots in christianity because christianity foments the sort of authoritarian uh you know top-down um uh, societal structure, which uh, then gave rise, even after it was long, even after it had long been secularized, it sort of like su- it, it sowed the seeds of of of, of German uh, racist racist um, racist uh, authoritarianism. So, so yes, I think to some extent, you know, there is there is that strand of you know authoritarianism in politics, which has traditionally been folk, which has been. Um, uh, um, located on the right but i think these days you're um you're um you also have a libertarian right i mean look at argentina right um it's just very interesting how the entire mainstream press has been adopting this this sobriquet this moniker of javier Milei as a far-right trumpian candidate yeah. When in reality, if you try to take a step back and really understand Millet in his own terms, he's he's a radical individualist. He sees fascism and socialism as different versions of the same sort of collectivist philosophy. Okay. He's he's in this sort of like so. I think we're so yeah. I, th- I think it's an interesting point, you know, about authoritarianism. Um, to go yeah. back on my on my point, I think I was yes there is what you're describing but i think what i was kind of focusing in is kind of attempts at a, a separation between two parties or two kind of movements which have one is liberal in the sense of kind of liberal de- democracy and the checks and controls and so on but it's worse has a kind of distrust of democracy as the electoral process Mm. You have one being kind of hyper-democratic, that one referendums on everything, blah, blah. Mm. But at its worst, has very unliberal uh, kind of temptations as well. And we have the kind of these two forces which reinforce each other. And I think it was in kind of full display in the UK over Brexit wars, where essentially you got kind of one half of saying, we need to trust the expert, we can't trust the people. And the other saying, well, you know, we're, we're never being listened to. And this is opportunity to smash the system. And the kind of aristocratic disdain um, from the kind of the Romanians, if you want, kind of nourished the uh, authoritarian anger, if you will, of people saying, let's smash the whole thing up. Um, And, you know, I'm talking here in kind of very, very broad stroke, but I think it is kind of a temptation which is very apparent. And I think it was also apparent in the 2005 referendum in France, for example, we had like a lot of the centrist parties who um, uh, were backing the European Union. On the other hand, you kind of kind of your populist parties were margins saying, let's flip the table. And I think both of these are kind of reinforcing each other. For every kind of referendum where the people wrote in the vote for the wrong side, kind of centrist sides will be saying kind of, oh, we, we can't trust the people. And the more we kind of, oh, we can't trust the people, the more you'll get people saying, well, let's smash the whole system up because they won't allow us to express ourselves. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I just, I just find it kind of very interesting. Tent- I mean, I think Yasha Moon talks about it in some way in, in his book a few years ago, uh, The People Against Democracy. He was talking about the temptation. But I think what was interesting is he talked about the kind of 
the kind of Marine Le Pen angle of using the democracy, using democracy to kind of undermine liberal institutions. What I kind of wish had been more in the book as well is the opposite, kind of how how centrists at the worst will kind of shy away from losing and accepting the democrat democratic and electoral process as being not kind of for control but kind of a compromise with people who have different values um mm -hmm. yeah yeah i i, I think it was a, a as you said it was a, a tremendously uh illuminating conversation i think they from the very beginning and this was the way you had structured this this the script um, they really, really tackled from the get-go this central question, what I believe is a central question of politics in our time, which is why do people vote the way they do? Is it more of a material calculus? And mm -hmm. Rob was very careful to stress the difference between, well, it may well be a material calculus, but it need not necessarily be a self-interested material calculus. You may be voting over yeah. on economics against your own economic interests. So that would be sort of one major uh, motivation. And then everything that lies on, on the other side is more sort of blurry, you know, harder to define uh, totum revolutum of, of causes, right? Like, what is identity? What is culture? What is, um, and, and, um, and I, I was very appreciative of the fact that from the very beginning, that Rob was very critical with that sort of framework, which he himself began by saying, these are the two main axes, but he was willing to concede that actually the two criteria are, are interacting with one another and it's very hard to disentangle them. Yeah. I mean, it was a fascinating conversation. Um, yeah, well, thank you so much for all of you for tuning in for it. Um, again, if you have the full episode where we talk about the European question, the tensions, well, not just the European question, but the supranational and the infranational uh, conversations going on in Spain, going on in the UK, going across the continent, as well as the upcoming European elections, you can join us in our Patreon section um, for as little as five euros a month. The uh, link is below in the description. We would love to have you on with us for those conversations. Um, otherwise, Jorge, thank you so much for joining me and uh, see you all next time. Thank you, Francois.